Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode features Chris Smith, Kat Arney, Dave Ansell and Sarah Custer-Perry, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how the Amazon rainforest could turn from a massive carbon sink into a worrying carbon source. And because areas of the Amazon were deprived of rainfall lots of trees began to die and the death of those trees and the stalling of the growth in the Amazon meant that instead of locking away carbon it began to release carbon and in the worst case scenarios about two tonnes of carbon began to be released per hectare. A new way to predict when and to what extent a landslide or avalanche will happen. I found the more disordered the pile was before the next ball was added the larger the landslip was going to be and you can predict the size of the landslip with a 64% accuracy. It does show that if you're wanting to predict avalanches or earthquakes you should be looking at the history but you should be looking at the actual state of the snow or the actual state of the rocks underground and near earth object 2009 dd45 it swung past far closer to earth than our own moon but could it have hit us occasionally we do spot these small asteroids coming past us uh in fact objects of that size hit the earth probably about once every two or three hundred years they hit us on, on timescales of centuries Plus, the self-sensing centre in your brain, the genes for cigarette addiction, and Sarah Custer-Perry will tell us about the first ever telephone conversation this week in 1876. That's all on the way. A paper in the journal Science this week is very worrying for several reasons because it says that the Amazon rainforest, which, let me tell you, is absolutely huge, six million square kilometres of surface of the land in South America that it covers, could actually become our worst enemy if there is a massive acceleration of the greenhouse effect. This is the work of Oliver Phillips. He's an ecologist at Leeds University, and he, together with 68 international collaborators, have been monitoring the Amazon for a long time. And the way they've been doing this is by setting up 136 study plots. These are small areas of the Amazon which they routinely visit, and they measure the growth of trees, plants, shrubs, and what's living and what's dying. The idea being to calculate how much biomass, how much living material is in each of these plots. This means you can calculate how much carbon it must be locking away or releasing, and this gives you an idea as to how much carbon dioxide the whole of the Amazon is able to take away or put back into the atmosphere year on year. And to put it into perspective, the Amazon actually locks away something like, at the moment, 100 billion tonnes of carbon. And what their research showed that in all of the years leading up to 2005, every single hectare of the Amazon rainforest was taking out of the atmosphere at least a tonne of carbon every single year. But then in 2005, something dramatic happened. If you cast your mind back, you'll probably remember that it was the same year that Hurricane Katrina occurred. And Hurricane Katrina uh, was driven or spawned by a pool of very warm water in the North Atlantic. That's what kindles hurricanes. And what the knock-on effect of that was, was to trigger a drought in the Amazon. And because areas of the Amazon were deprived of rainfall, lots of trees began to die. And the death of those trees and the stalling of the growth in the Amazon meant that instead of locking away carbon, it began to release carbon. And in the worst-case scenarios, about two tonnes of carbon began to be released per hectare of the Amazon rainforest. Now, what um, Oliver Phillips says is that at the moment, the Amazon is one of our best allies. It's accounting for a huge drawdown of carbon dioxide every single year. It's soaking up a lot of the carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere. But 
if climate change goes ahead, we're going to see higher temperatures of the ocean waters. We may therefore see, therefore see more droughts over the Amazon in future, and this means this event could play out more often. And this means that if you do see more droughts in the Amazon, you will see more releases of carbon and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which could trigger a much faster greenhouse effect or an acceleration of the greenhouse effect. So, as he puts it, we need to move this up the political agenda. Worrying stuff. And now from uh, a smoking gun to a smoking gene. Uh, Tobacco causes around a quarter of all cancer deaths in the UK, as well as other nasty diseases like heart disease, lung disease, and so on. And it's also a fiercely addictive drug. This means that people find it very hard to give up once they've started. But why do some people manage to quit the cigarettes relatively easily? Others fight a lifelong battle. And what makes some people start in the first place um, and become addicted after just a few cigarettes? Well, some people just never really uh, take up the habit at all. Now, some studies have been done using twins. These are nature's genetic experiments um, and shown that maybe smoking behaviour may be hereditary. So maybe it is controlled by some genes. And now researchers from the US writing in the journal PLOS One have used the latest DNA analysis techniques to hunt for genes that are linked to smoking behaviour. Now, they looked at DNA taken from over 2,300 men and more than 2,200 women. These were a mixture of smokers and non-smokers. And they looked at specific markers of their smoking behaviour, so the number of cigarettes they smoked per day, the age they started smoking, how long they'd smoked for, uh, and that kind of thing. And they looked at whether they'd ever smoked or whether they'd managed to give up as well. And they used so-called SNP analysis. This is a analysis across the whole genome. It's sometimes called genome scanning analysis, where you try and narrow down specific regions of the genome of the human DNA that are linked to specific traits or diseases, that kind of thing. And now they uh, found in around the total of the people involved in the study, around 2,600 of them have ever smoked. And although in this study they didn't actually find any new genes that were linked to smoking, they did find some more evidence to support the existence of an important gene in smoking behaviour that's on human chromosome 15. They did find also some evidence for other genes. Uh, For example, as you might expect, the genes that encode nicotine receptors did uh, kind of pop up in their study. And another very interesting gene called monoamine oxidase, which is on the X chromosome. Uh, and this uh, variations in this gene affected whether people were more or less likely to smoke around 10 cigarettes a day or more. Now, this gene's particularly intriguing because it's also been linked in the past to alcoholism and to Parkinson's disease, so it does deserve a lot more investigation. Another interesting result was that the gene for alcohol, some of the alcohol dehydrogenases also popped up in the study. Um, so although a lot of these links are quite weak at the moment, it certainly provided a lot more leads uh, for further research. And the true picture is probably going to be very complex because with smoking, it's obviously social factors as, as well as genetic and um, sort of the neurological factors in the brain. So do the researchers suggest that this could be, by knowing about these genes, a a sort of lead in terms of making better countermeasures, ways to get people off smoking? Well, there there are obviously pharmacological approaches. If you can find out what sort of receptors that people may or may not have variations in them, you might be able to design drugs. But also maybe you can try and target better, more effective measures to people or suggest like just don't smoke in the first place would probably be the best thing.
uh, from smoking to possibly gluttony, but on a planetary scale. Now, scientists have spent a long time trying to simulate the birth of the solar system, partly to try and understand our own system, and partly to try and estimate how many other similar solar systems are out in the galaxy. One thing that's confused them is Jupiter's moons. There just aren't enough of them. According to all it's the... quite a lot, though, isn't it? It's got a fair number, and they're quite heavy. They're, they're some of the biggest ones in the solar system. But they only make up about 2% of the whole, the whole of Jupiter's mass. Because according to all the simulations, they should make up about 10%. There should be five or six times as many of them. Now, Robin Canop of the Southwest Research Institute in Colorado may have worked out where all the moons have gone. They've been eaten up by Jupiter itself. Um, Cannibalistic planet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, yeah. Jupiter and its moons were formed out of a disk of gas and lumps of rocks, which slowly, as friction worked between them, so they were all orbiting one another, and slowly, as friction worked between them, they collapsed into form the Jupiter itself and the moons. However, um, what he reckons is going on is that the, f- the first set of moons formed where there was still all this disk of material, and the friction acted on those moons, and so their orbit got lower and lower and lower. Just slowed them down. Slowed them down until they just crashed into Jupiter in one of the most big, some of the huge, biggest collisions the solar system seen for a long, long time. Um, and then he reckoned that another generation of moons formed, and another one, and possibly there's been five generations of moons, and only the very last generation went just as that... Um, moon forming disc was just finally collapsing there was not enough there to slow them down other ones we can see today is the same phenomenon probably happening elsewhere in the solar system because we know that we have other gas giants that have rings it's not just saturn that has rings around it so could the same thing or the same story be playing out elsewhere um the the rings of jupiter and saturn i think there's very little mass in them they're very very thin they're only a few hundred meters thick so it's not happening in the solar system now um this was happening the first few tens of millions of years of jupiter being forming so but it would probably be happening in other solar systems just as they're being created and uh, now, speaking of, well, self, you, you seem to have uh, imposed a personality on Jupiter, this very greedy planet. But what makes us have a sense of our own self? And what do we think about ourselves? This is one of the most intriguing areas of neuroscience at the moment. And uh, basically, how are we aware of our own thoughts and our personality? Now, previous research has shown that a few areas of the brain, areas called the prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulated cortex, and the parietal regions, I have no idea where those are, they're in the brain somewhere but they're involved in self-reflection and processing our sense of self but can we draw a distinction between regions of the brain that are specifically involved in processing thoughts about ourself from different regions that are involved in processing thoughts about people in general and new results from researchers in the netherlands using functional mri scanning this is mri scanning where you could look at the activity of the brain they may have now provided a clue and shown that our sense of self may reside at least partly in a region called the anterior insula this is deep in your forebrain and it's part of the brain linked to feelings and emotions. And so to find this out, the researchers used 16 young male volunteers and they put them in an MRI scanner. And they were shown three different types of statements and asked to say whether they were true. So uh, they were shown statements about themselves, like, I am a good friend. Uh, they were shown statements about someone they knew, like a teammate or a classmate, like, you know, so-and-so talks too much. And they were also shown general knowledge statements like, a vertebrae is a bone. And while asking the volunteers to think about these statements, the researchers looked at their brain activity. And they found that when the volunteers were thinking about statements and trying to apply them to themselves, there was activity in this part of the brain, the anterior insula. But this wasn't seen when they were thinking about statements uh, 
about general knowledge and also about statements about other people. So it really does suggest that although they found areas of activity in many other parts of the brain that we already know about, that maybe this sort of sense of self-awareness is particularly strong in this particular area of the brain. That's very interesting because there was research done in the last year or so looking at people who have anorexia and scanning the same region of the brain shows that when people with anorexia are presented with a food stimulus, this area of the brain shows different activity compared with normal people. And we know this bit of the brain is active when you are relating what you're thinking about and what you're doing to how it will impact on your body. And so they're suggesting that people who have anorexia uh, are misappropriating or misinterpreting how the stimulus, the food that they want to or don't want to eat is going to impact on their body. And so it sort of tallies with what you're saying. Absolutely. And it's quite interesting for other psychiatric diseases like schizophrenia, um, where you sort of have a disturbed sense of self as well. So if we can understand more about these parts of the brain, we might understand more about these kind of conditions. Which would be very helpful. Dave? On something somewhat different, um, predicting earthquakes and avalanches is a notoriously difficult problem. Scientists have been attempting to do so for hundreds of years with very, very little success. Now a group from Imperial College may have worked out a way forward. Both earthquakes and avalanches are types of critical phenomena. The classic example is slowly pouring sand onto a pile. Um, the top of the sand pile slowly gets more and more unstable until something gives and you get a landslide. The problem is that predicting how big this landslide or exactly when it's going to be is almost impossible because it might just be a tiny little landslide just a few centimetres or it might be a huge one. There's this small landslide triggers a bigger one which triggers a bigger one and swoops the whole way down the pile. Now, Henrik Jensen has been looking at a simplified version of this. He's been creating a pile of ball bearings in two dimensions, adding one at a time to the top of the um, pile. Every time he added a ball, he took a photo. And occasionally, there were landslides of different sizes, and he's been trying to predict it in various ways. He found it was virtually impossible to predict the size of the landslide the traditional way by looking at the size of the previous landslides. But he did have more look by looking at the state of the pile before each ball was added. He found the more disordered the pile was before the next ball was added, the larger the landslip was going to be. And he could predict the size of the landslip with a 64% accuracy. He thinks he can get a lot better by using a more sophisticated model. Um, it sounds pretty a pretty abstract finding, but it does show that if you're wanting to predict avalanches or earthquakes, you shouldn't be looking at the history um, of previous avalanches, but you should be looking at the actual state of the snow or the actual state of the rocks underground. And so it might, might look to be a way forward. So if you have very freaky weather, which leads to a very disordered structure of the snowpack, that's a more avalanche-prone situation than any particular sequence of weather. Yeah, um, it's not so much the... Um, it's less about exactly the snowpack. Uh, probably in, in an actual avalanche, it wouldn't necessarily be the disorder. It might be some properties of the snow which are different. But the important thing is to be studying the actual snow on the ground every day rather than looking at when the last avalanche was if you want to predict what's going on in the future. Thank you, Dave. I understand that the best model actually comes from using table tennis balls, which are very cheap and very light, so they don't actually damage people, but they provide an excellent study subject because it's very easy for digital cameras to see them. Now, uh, if you have been watching the news this week, then you might have noticed that the Earth had a brush with a near-Earth object. On the other hand, you might have been forgiven for letting it pass you by, which is luckily precisely what happened to the Earth this week. But we did have a close encounter with DD45. And to tell us what DD45 was, here's Professor Alan Fitzsimmons from Queen's University in Belfast. Hello, Alan. Hello there. So tell us a bit about this object. What is it? Well, it's a small asteroid. It's about somewhere between 20 and 40 metres across. It was discovered actually just about, only just over a week ago on Friday the 27th of February, and it passed our planet by at a distance of only 72,000 kilometres uh, on Tuesday. 
And that's extremely close. I mean, that's, let's put that in perspective. Satellites orbit the Earth about 25,000 miles out, so that's only about twice as far away as, as a geostationary satellite. That's right, that's right. And um, occasionally we do spot these small asteroids coming past us. Uh, in fact, we, the objects of that size hit the Earth probably about once every two or three hundred years. We're not quite sure how often they hit us at the moment, but uh, they hit us on, on timescales of centuries. Had this thing not been 70,000 or 70,000 kilometres away, it had actually landed on Earth, what sort of damage would that have done? How would it compare with, say, the object that wiped out the dinosaurs? Well, it's much smaller than that. The object that wiped out the dinosaurs was about 10 kilometres across and had global consequences. Uh, those objects only hit us about once every 100 million years. An object that can cause climate change uh, can be as small as one kilometre across, however, but even they only hit us once every uh, million years or so. Something this size may have been similar to the object that entered our atmosphere over Tunguska in Siberia in 1908. It may... Uh, it have exploded low down in the atmosphere if it had, had entered our atmosphere um, and perhaps about a few kilometres up. And it, but it would have wiped out several thousand square kilometres of ground. So, I mean, that's city-devastating sort of level. How did we miss this kind of object? Because I thought we had, I was reassured to learn, we had systems in place to spot these things so that we could take action. Uh, well, it's because the systems we have in place are designed to spot the larger asteroids, the one-kilometre guys and larger, the ones that would affect the entire planet. But they're too small to effectively uh, catalogue all the much smaller objects. Now, at the moment, uh, the next generation of survey telescopes is in construction. There's something called PANSTARS, which actually starts operating this year in Hawaii. And then uh, sometime in the next decade, towards the end of the next decade, something called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope will get going in Chile. However, even those telescopes won't be able to catalogue all the objects about the same size as DD45. So we're just going to have to keep uh, watching and, and surveying the sky. Where did DD45 come from? And given that it was so close this time round, is it or is there any chance it might go round again and have another go? Well, the, the asteroids in orbit about the sun, just as everything else is in our solar system. It has an orbital period of a, just over one and a half years. Uh, and its orbit just happens to have a point in it where it is very close to the Earth's orbit. So roughly once a, every March, if the asteroid's there and the Earth is there, it can come close to us. Now, at the moment, it can't hit us. The next time it will be close to us will be actually be on the 3rd of March in the year 2067, when even then it will pass by twice as far as it did this week. But over the coming centuries and thousands of years, its orbit will change slightly due to the gravitational tugs uh, of the Earth and the other planets, and it may well end up hitting us in a few thousand years' time. We don't know at the moment. We haven't got enough data on its orbit. So unless you're Bruce Forsyth or someone who's going to live forever like that, then you're probably in no danger. Thank you very much. That was Alan Fitzsimmons from Queen's University in Belfast to tell us about our brush this week with DD45, a near-Earth object. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. And now Sarah Custer-Perry calls back to 1876 to discover the very first telephone conversation. 
This week in science history saw on the 10th of March 1876 the first documented two-way transmission of clear human speech between Alexander Graham Bell and his assistant, Mr Watson, with the famous phrase, Mr Watson, come here, I want to see you. This first two-way conversation marked the beginning of something that is now an overlooked part of everyday life. And although this was one of the most famous occasions in the story of the invention of the telephone, there were many other players involved, not just Bell. Bell was born and educated in Scotland, and even as a child had been fascinated by the production of sound and language and how it could be reproduced mechanically. This early interest may have been sparked by the fact that his mother was deaf and his father worked as a speech therapist. As an adult, his first real experiments that led him into his work on the telephone focused on the artificial production of speech, using a set of differently tuned reeds, a bit like the strings of a harp, to produce different tones according to an alternating current that passed through them. This moved on to producing vowel sounds, which was something other scientists at the time had also achieved, much to Bell's disappointment. But he thought, well, if we can make vowel sounds, then why shouldn't consonants and articulate speech be made too? It was in the early 1870s that the idea of capturing a real voice and using that to generate the current that drove the artificial speech production at the other end really leapt forward. Several scientists across Europe and in Canada and America, where Bell was living and working, came up with solutions to the problem of how to convert human speech into electrical current and how to convert that back to speech again. Two of these solutions, the liquid microphone, an idea that Bell may or may not have pinched from the American Elias Gray, and the electromagnetic microphone, developed both by Bell and by the Italian Antonio Meucci, another contender to the title of the inventor of the telephone. The liquid microphone that Bell used in his famous demonstration on the 10th of March works as follows. The transmitting subject spoke into one end of a tube, and the opposite end was covered in a thin diaphragm of paper or animal skin with a small needle attached to it. When the speech vibrated the diaphragm, the point of the needle would become more or less immersed in a liquid. Another wire measured the change in conductivity in the liquid as the metal needle became more or less submerged. This changed the current in the wire, which caused a rudimentary earpiece to vibrate and produce a copy of the original speech. What's quite controversial is that this apparatus is quite different from that of Bell's previous experiments and was quickly abandoned by him in favour of the more efficient electromagnetic microphone. This works by the principle that moving a piece of soft iron in and out of a coil of wire that is held in a magnetic field will induce a voltage in the coil. The resulting change in current flow causes the exact opposite to happen at the earpiece. The voltage change in a coil of wire at that end causes a flat disc-like piece of soft iron to vibrate in and out of the end of the coil according to the frequency of the sound that went in at the first end. This vibration produces the speech. It is on this principle that most high-quality microphones, like the one I'm using right now, still work today, although those in telephones now use a different sort, the carbon granule microphone invented by Edison. The events of the 10th of March were soon followed by Bell and Watson in August of the same year with the first long-distance transmission over five miles. From here, everything about the telephone has been under constant improvement. The distance, the sound quality, the volume, and more recently, the wireless than the mobile phone. The telephone has revolutionised our world. We can speak to loved ones, friends or business partners thousands of miles away or get help in an emergency. Bell's work was extremely important in realising the potential of the telephone, 
But we mustn't forget the other scientists who worked so hard and were just pipped to the patent post by a very talented, or just a very lucky, man. Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how the words, Mr Watson, come here, I want to see you, marked the very first telephone conversation, without which the world would seem a much smaller place today. Sarah will be rifling the science archives again next week. But that's all we have on this week's Naked Scientist Newsflash, which this week featured Chris Smith, Kat Arney, Dave Ansell and Sarah Castor-Perry, along with our guest, Professor Alan Fitzsimmons. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed this newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast? Each week we'll bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews with top scientists, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment for you to get hands-on with and try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.